0: Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to the Accelerator with Michael Conniff. That's me. We are a podcast devoted to founders and entrepreneurs and everything in between. Um, we also have a sister uh, or sibling, I should say, podcast, The Angel, which is more about the money people, uh, angels, VCs, family offices, and so on. Um, we are both, we are available, both podcasts on um, every major platform, Apple, Amazon, Audible, et cetera. Plus, we're on Spotify and on YouTube uh, with video. We're also uh, on video and audio on uh, Substack. So we would ask you to uh, check out uh, theaccelerator.substack.com and get on our mailing list. Um, And uh, make sure to rate us and review us and like us and share us and tell your friends. So with that said, um, I want to welcome a very distinguished guest to the Accelerator uh, today. His name is Dr. Steve Charlap. He is uh, the CEO and founder of uh, Soap Health. That's S O A P. Welcome, Steve. Great to have you. I should say, welcome, Doctor. Great to have you.
1: Thank you. Happy uh, to be.
0: Because I know you're. Uh, 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 tell tell us about your medical career before we we get into your company. What is um, um, what made you want to be a doctor, and what kind of doctor did
1: you become? So. Interesting enough, in college, I was a speech and drama major and a film minor, but uh, fortunately was a good student, so I met all the requisites for medical school, got into uh, several medical schools, ended up attending uh, New York University School of Medicine. Mm -hmm. Uh, After medical school, trained as a general surgeon, and actually after uh, training as a general surgeon, went to business school.
0: Okay, now why why did you do that? That's a that's an unusual career path, but certainly an interesting one. What what's behind
1: that decision? You know, I found that medicine had become uh, quite cookbook like, and I've always considered myself more the creative type, and I really didn't see opportunities for creativity in medicine. Plus, around the time I was in medical school, people were Complaining quite a bit, particularly during my surgical residency, how the Harvard MBAs were ruining medicine. And I found the business people in the hospitals complaining how MDs didn't understand that medicine was a business. So, having been fortunate enough to be accepted into Harvard Business School, I said, okay, I could be one of those people that has both the MD and the MBA and could understand both sides of the equation and could have a much greater impact on US healthcare than I ever could as an individual doctor.
0: And so it took you, what, seven years to become a doctor, uh, and then you spent another two years in in uh, business school. So you're a well-educated man, Steve.
1: Um, well, I also went back to school at Stanford uh, later in my career. And what, 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 which school? At Stanford, I was a fellow in a program in Stanford called the Distinguished Careers Institute. I studied genetics and um, negotiation and marketing. So I took courses at uh, the medical school as well as the business school. I That's was great. there for three and a half years. That's great. And uh, so, so did you actually practice medicine? So I'm licensed to practice. I did quite a bit of moonlighting because I was quite poor and I couldn't afford to pay for Harvard Business School. Uh, the first year so i had to do moonlighting to pay the tuition and the second year i convinced him to give me a full scholarship so thank god for little things yeah. because it was very tough to go to school and work as a physician at the same time so and what... many years later i opened up a preventive medicine clinic where i actually practiced pr- primary prevention medicine that i self-trained myself for but but but
0: clearly you're you're interested in what a doctor can do in business and what the opportunities and what the innovation could be in business. Um, so tell me, tell me what you found as you were leaving business school. So you're like 10 years into your education, your, your, your post-grad education, um, 15 years into your education. What, what were you seeing at that point that, that really kind of got you excited?
1: Well, it's kind of funny because when I told friends that I was going to business school, people said, I can't believe you, you're such a doctor type. And by the time I graduated from business school, people said, I can't believe you were a doctor. because <laughs> I really kind of bought into the whole culture of understanding what it took to uh, run a business, start a business, and I've since spent my life as an entrepreneur. So the thing that got me most excited was having finally the vernacular and the tools to actually start something and start impacting healthcare beyond what I could do ever as an individual doctor seeing individual patients.
0: So walk us through the the project, the uh, progression um, from having those degrees all the way up to um, Soap Health. So we'll get to Soap Health in a second. But what what how many years are we talking about, and what what kind of entrepreneurship did you
1: do? Yeah, so my first job out of business school, I was Director of Global Corporate Development for a publicly traded biotech company. And interesting enough, when I got there, because I had no relevant business experience and just out of business school, my opinions really didn't count for much, but I actually thought that I had a good sense of what we needed to do and ended up getting a multi-million dollar, $25 million deal done with Smith, Klein, Beecham that doubled the price of the stock as I was walking out the door. So that was- What was the deal you did? Well, we had a whole bunch of different biotech technologies for this publicly traded company. And the idea was go to different drug companies and talk about seven different products under a non-compete situation. And I said, don't distract companies, find which companies would be most interested in one of the products we have, get them to sign a non-compete agreement talked to them about that particular product and this particular product was what was called a complement inhibitor. And I reached out to Smith Klein and both the CEO who was an HBS graduate as well as the head of biotech. And I connected with both of them. I got them to agree to sign an NDA when I was told no one will sign an NDA. And then we made a presentation and they bought it and they invested 25 million into the company T cell sciences. And like I said, I I had been issued shares at three bucks a share and it doubled to six bucks a share. And I had about 7,500 shares. And so I cashed out um, about 25,000, which was the first money I ever made. Because when I graduated business school, I literally, my wife and I and two kids had $5 in the bank (laughs) and a borrowed money from my parents to buy groceries.
0: Uh huh. So, So, why did you leave that company at that moment?
1: Well, because I wanted to start my own company and I ended up starting a company called Health Drive, which grew to be the largest provider of medical and dental services to extended care facilities in the United States. And we also built the world's first mobile multi-specialty electronic health record system. Health Drive ended up taking care of about 5 million patients over my uh, 19 years at the helm.
0: So Health, health Drive, it was called? Health and, Drive. And, and did you have an
1: exit with that company? yep i had a successful exit with a bidding war and we were sold to a private equity firm i retired for a year it was the worst year of my life so i decided to give back so i invested two million dollars of my own money with a friend and i opened up a state-of-the-art primary prevention medical center called md prevent that was doing unbelievable things clinically was struggling financially and then my older brother a practicing cardiologist got diagnosed with uh, cancer, and uh, was gone shortly thereafter. And a month right. after he closed, uh, he passed. I ended up closing the event. And uh, not long after, I went to Stanford. Uh, first year, I studied. Second year, I was part of a research project. And the third year, Stanford gave me grant money to build an early prototype. And then I spent two more years at Harvard as a visiting scientist, got a little pilot done. And then I formed a company about four years ago. Which is SOAP Health? SOAP Health. Okay. It stands for Objective Objective Assessment Plan.
0: Okay, subjective objective assessment plan. So, peel that
1: back for us. What does that mean? It means we've built the world's greatest interviewer that is always accessible, infinitely patient, sometimes funny, that uses voice to talk to people in a conversational tone and is trained to allow people to respond by voice to any Question. It's patented and clinically validated. Then we built RiskView, the world's most comprehensive risk assessment, and we incorporated a differential diagnosis tool that generates possible diagnosis based on the symptoms we've collected from the patient. We do risk assessments on family history, lifestyle, social determinants of health. Then we roll it up into a note that's easy for doctors to read, absorb, and edit. So before the patients walked in the door, up to 90% of the encounter has been completed in terms of patient interview and documentation. And then it rolls into a full traditional soap note and the doctor can voice command that into over hundred electronic medical records. So it does several incredible things. One, it improves diagnostic accuracy and, and reduces liability exposure. That's a big issue because here in the United States, every 2.6 seconds, A diagnostic error is made, and every 40 seconds, somebody dies or is permanently disabled by one of those diagnostic errors. So, we're going to significantly eliminate that. Two, it reduces no shows because when patients indulge and invest in the interview process, Mm -hmm. it's a fairly lengthy interview because it's meant to be comprehensive. They show up for their appointments. It also saves the doctor over two hours a day, freeing up some cognitive space and time to spend more time with their patients not staring at a computer screen. And for some doctors, it generates more revenue because it identifies problems that might otherwise have gone undetected.
0: And when you say clinically proven, what does that unpack that for me?
1: So we published a study with the Applied AI Research Group at Stanford uh, that was published last year. We've done a few other pilots that have shown just incredible data in terms of patient engagement, patient uh, completion, patient Give me some specifics. specifics. What's the improvement? So in one study, in 100% of patients, Genie, the digital human, collected information missed by the doctor. In two out of three patients, she identified risk factors that are the number one reason for misdiagnosis that were missed by the doctors. In another study, she collected 44% more actionable data that changed diagnosis, treatments, and referrals. She reduced the physician intake and documentation time by 66%. She reduced nurse intake and documentation time by 98% from an average of 27 minutes down to 30 seconds. She increased reimbursement by about 17 to
0: 20%. Wow. And and, she uh,
1: is a lifesaver. And she is, uh, you say she metaphorically, right? No, she's an animated character on a screen that's waving at you. Okay. At one point, if you ask her, are you an AI? She'll say, hmm, let me think about that for a moment. I guess <laughs> you could say AI is part of my DNA. <laughs> That's funny. If you say to her, are you ugly? She'll say, no, no, no. That's no way to speak to another person. <laughs> what is the business model? It's a SaaS model. We sell it to physicians per physician, uh, monthly fee. We guarantee that for every dollar a physician pays us, they'll make back in improved productivity. You
0: you actually mean guarantee. You actually will pay the doctors if they don't
1: see that improvement. If they use the tool as directed, they will make back $10 for every dollar they pay us. And by the way, this product is priced lower than any other comparative product in the market because I'm on a personal mission to save lives in memory of my brother, who unfortunately was a physician who lost his life to a misdiagnosis.
0: And what, um, what uh, um, that, that's, that's, that's quite a sobering thought uh, about your brother, and so sorry to hear about that. What was the, what was the diagnosis, and what, what did they get wrong?
1: Despite a very extensive family history of early cancers and deaths, my brother's colleagues failed to ask him the relevant questions to identify that he was at increased risk for cancer, and therefore, we're not on the lookout for the cancer, and he ended up getting diagnosed with two cancers a week apart, two primary cancers, and one of them in an advanced stage. So the misdiagnosis was a missed diagnosis.
0: Yeah, indeed, I'm so sorry. And and so this is uh, this is a motivator for you. So my guess is that when that happens in 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 the real world, uh, not to physicians, but normal, you know, civilians, um, that that kind of mistake, I'm, guess, I'm just guessing, you can probably give me some numbers, but that kind of mistake would seem to go
1: undetected a lot, right? Well, until it, until it gets detected and it's too late to do anything meaningful. So it's estimated there's at least 12 million diagnostic errors made each year and at least 800,000 people die or develop permanent disabilities from diagnostic errors. And in fact, the U.S. National Academy of Medicine now predicts that everyone will experience a diagnostic error so my advice to your listeners be the first one to go to the doctor during the day because as the day goes on unfortunately they suffer from something called decision fatigue and they become less conscientious just from uh, brain exhaustion
0: you know this reminds me when i lived in burlington vermont years ago i had a uh... A doctor, Dr. Altman, he was a, a Harvard uh, Medical School educated doctor. And I and um, he, was, he was super smart. But what he really was, was an amazing diagnostician. And so what happened over time is that I would, you know, you would hear people saying, I don't know what's wrong with me. I mean, how often does that happen? I mean, I think that is much more prevalent than people. I don't know what's wrong with me. You know, we can all, you know, I have a pain up here right now. I've been told it could be three different things. I don't know what's wrong with me, right? So I would send people to Dr. Altman, and he just had an uncanny ability to put his finger on things. And um, part of it, I know you're a very broad reader of, uh, of uh, medical research, right? And, and, the, uh, and the literature, I guess you could call it. And so was he. And he was, um, he was so up on everything. Um, comparatively, that, that he was better than most people. But I bring it up for this reason. I've never met anyone like him since then. I've never met a doctor who had his diagnostic abilities. He was really something. He was really something. And so I think what you're suggesting with SOAP is that a lot of that can be um, uh, automatically uh, provided by AI. And by you know teaching the model, the the, the language model, uh, what to look for, what to ask, and and I'm also sort of struck by, is it less complicated than I think?
1: To take well, a look, how many how many years ago how many years ago did you go to that doctor? We're
0: talking about you know thirty years, ago, uh,
1: 25, 30 years ago. Okay, so in the, in that twenty five to thirty years, there's been somewhere between fifty to sixty million. More clinical studies published. Wow. Okay, 150 years ago, the founder of the Mayo Clinic said, There's too much medical knowledge for one doctor to know. And so imagine today, it's far mm. beyond the intellectual capacity of any human being to even consider or know 28,000 different known diseases today or permutations of those diseases. Plus, there's all kinds of diseases that have a genetic underpinning related to uh, genetic mutations or related to issues with proteins or issues with metabolites. Human knowledge has expanded beyond the capacity of the human brain to fully consider and process it, particularly when you're pressed for time with an individual patient. Even the concierge doctors that give you more time. I tell you right now they probably think of several hundred common diseases, and beyond that, they're generally going to be stumped.
0: That's a little scary, but also there's sort of a flip side to this. Doesn't it, doesn't it indicate that there, there are going to be a lot of
1: situations where you maybe don't need the doctor? Look, AI can be always accessible, infinitely patient, sometimes funny, lower cost, as opposed to a human doctor that has to be scheduled, it's far more expensive, and uh, is not always accessible. Yeah. So given the choice, look, I'm running something, I'm running a, a poll right now on LinkedIn that says, if you had, because one of the big debates in AI is AI empathy, okay? Can AI match the empathy of a human doctor? And I say that's a moot point, why? Because given the choice between a highly accurate and competent doctor versus a highly empathetic doctor, what would most people choose? Well, in my survey right now, 93% chose the highly accurate, competent doctor. Well, that's I, w- I would choose the both. Would like for both. AI, I would like both, though. I would like both. I should right. be able to but that's, that's few and far between. That you find that unbelievable diagnostician who's also highly yeah. empathetic yeah. and isn't isn't driven to make a decent living. So they'll give you all the time of the day that you need and want. So, That's the exception.
0: So when the AI when Jean, I think you call it Genie when the Genie is um, out of the bottle and 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 asking the questions. Um so say that I have um, uh, melanoma and I didn't know I had it or that there are indications, right? So um, would Genie actually say, "Well, it looks like you've got melanoma."
1: <laughs> no, or today Jeannie only shares the information with the doctor. But so okay. let's take melanoma because Jeannie is obviously not examining you. So, how would Jeannie know that you have melanoma? So, let's talk about some risk factors for melanoma. One is significant sun exposure or burns. So, we ask a question about your skin type and your history of sunburns. Okay. Mm-hmm. Jeannie could also suspect melanoma if someone in your family had melanoma. Okay. Jeannie could also suspect melanoma if someone in your family had several other cancers that are part of a syndrome that includes melanoma. So by identifying risk factors for melanoma, while Jeannie can't make a definitive diagnosis of melanoma, she could point a doctor to suspect melanoma when otherwise the doctor may not even think of it.
0: Now, Steve, I know you have an expertise in medical records because you had a company that did that. But is there any way to... Um, right now, what you're describing is is a very. I, I mean, AI is relatively new in the marketplace, and so it's kind of probably a mistake to say this is standard um, question query and response. Right? Query and response. Query and response. You add them all up, it
1: comes out looking like this. Um, well, there's branching logic, so it goes deeper based on the answer to the question. Right.
0: Right. But right. But it's still, you know, of a piece. Right. But isn't it is there a time or a day when either um, medical records could be incorporated? um, uh, So, for example, in in my case, in the skin cancer case, you know, I've had a couple of um, a couple of things removed, a couple of things biopsied. But Jeannie's not going to know that unless I tell her. Right. But if it's Jeannie going to
1: ask you. No, I know that, but but is there a way to provide yes. um, records? So we're about to announce a, a partnership of a company that pulls data out of the EMR, including looking at lab data, medical history data, medication data, and also uh, providing that data to us to help our own risk assessment guidelines. But they also run calculators mm-hmm. of different diseases. Melanoma, there's no calculator for melanoma. But again, the more information we have, whether it's directly from the patient or pulled out of the electronic medical record, we'll build a precision patient profile. And look, many years ago, doctors used to pay house visits and they knew the parents, they knew the children, they knew the grandparents, they knew your family history. They didn't have to take a family history. They might even have known your uncles and aunts and cousins. Today, doctors hardly know you and and you're lucky if you even see a doctor, really good chance you'll see a nurse practitioner or physician assistant. So, Nobody spends the amount of time like doctors used to because they're pressed to move on to the next patient. And quite unfortunately, here in the United States, they're not incentivized. And again, if you follow the money, they're not financially incentivized to prevent disease or early detect disease or even get the right diagnosis. Now, I'm not saying that they're malicious people that are gonna get the wrong diagnosis so they can see you over and over again. I'm just saying, if you follow the money, there's no financial incentive to get the right diagnosis. And unless mm. you kill the person, if they get the wrong diagnosis and the patient gets better anyway, cause it wasn't life threatening. Yeah. yeah. You get on the patient that they suffered longer for no reason.
0: Yeah, I I, I can see that. So tell me where is soap health uh, right now in, in terms of uh, revenue size, And uh, I'm guessing you're probably raising money. Where are you with all that?
1: So, I mean, we don't publicly announce what our revenues are, but I'll tell you, we have a big contract with the National Cancer Institute to improve cancer risk assessment in the primary care setting. We're working with uh, the top healthcare system in the United States today. We have an NDA, so I can't mention them by name. Uh, We're working with University of Miami and One Health, part of Atrium in North Carolina, Uh, working with a bunch of small medical practices like Family Medical Associates of South uh, Attleboro and uh, Mobile Medical Services in South Florida, uh, Ivy Creek in rural Alabama. So, uh, And then we have a consortium in the U.K. uh, with two top internationally recognized experts in diagnosis and Imperial College in London. So we've submitted grants with them to the National Health Service Mm -hmm. in the U.K., We just submitted a grant in South Korea, working with a large group in Europe that serves 30,000 physicians, working on agreements in India and uh, Taiwan. And we have some big deals cooking here in the U.S. with uh, a Cisco affiliate uh, that serves over 60 major healthcare systems. So we've got a lot of big deals um, in the process but we've been very painstaking because the first rule of medicine is first do no harm. And I adhere to that religiously, fanatically. So I want to make sure that when my product is used widely, people can absolutely trust it because it's been vetted and validated over and over again. So this is is where we we are now because, you know, it reminds me,
0: you know, this is a painful analogy, but, um, when people died from uh, electric car accidents um, the answer you know the response from Elon Musk and others was well far far more people die when people are when when people are driving cars than when cars drive cars right. so this is a similar question don't you um, set yourself up for liability um, even though you can statistically show that you're much better than the average doctor right? Mm-hmm but that doesn't mean you're not not liable. So how do you deal with that?
1: Well, we're not an AI doctor. The information all goes to the doctor and it's still within the purview of the man or woman doctor to make a decision on whether they wanna ignore the information provided to them, the risk assessments, the diagnosis assessments. But studies show that if you give a doctor a list of pre-visit diagnoses based on the patient's symptoms, in the overwhelming majority of cases, they are more likely to get the right diagnosis simply because they're they, they are given some reference points to think about that they might not otherwise think about. Personally, I would rather go to a doctor that has a tool like ours than go to a doctor, doctor that relies on his or her own intuition and intellectual capacity. But I mentioned this before, Does, isn't that a hop and a skip from not
0: needing the doctor at all?
1: It's going to be some time before we're even in the process of considering that. But I'll give you an analogy. We know that AI computers now are significantly superior to chess masters. But chess masters using AI computers to augment them are superior to AI computers. Right. So similarly. That may not last forever, though. Right. We'll find out. (laughs) (laughs) Right. <laughs> no, no, I, I that- watch a lot of science fiction and I like to think I'm a futurist uh, because I see what science fiction writers imagine is the future. And I've given lectures about medicine in 100 years. But the truth be told, we human beings think linearly. OK, some of us are able to think more creatively. But I heard the CEO of Google say something very interesting. They took their AI computer and the AI computer played millions of chess simulated games and identified a new strategy to win that had never been publicly revealed before.
0: Uh
1: Okay, so that's the power of AI, to completely come up with something we've never thought of.
0: So that means computers are sentient.
1: (laughs) They're not sentient, but they have far more processing capacity than even our neural network. Well, our neural networks are more complicated than computers, but we don't always perfectly use all of our neural networks.
0: I want to remind everybody: you're listening to the Accelerator with Michael Conniff. Uh, go to uh, theaccelerator.substack.com or every major Audible, every major uh, podcast platform, I should say, Audible, Amazon, etc um and uh also make sure to rate us like us subscribe to us do all the things that let us know that you like what we're doing um i want to uh uh give a particularly um how can i say this i want to really thank dr steve charlap from uh soap health where he is the founder and ceo soap he has a really i mean this sounds like an incredible tool it sounds like the first wave Um, and it, it, it makes me, and that's, you know, that's a good thing. you know, you got to get through the, you got to have the first wave before you do anything, but there's just so many implications to this, um, that are intriguing and fascinating. And, um, we wish you luck with it and, um, keep those great clinical results coming. And thanks for being on the accelerator. Appreciate
1: it. Thanks for having me.
0: My pleasure. And as I like to say to everybody at the end of every podcast, Keep listening because we'll be back with another one before you know it. Thanks.